Okay, now the task before me this morning is to speak to you about one of the most solemn and important subjects of them all. Today, I need to speak to you about death. Now, uh, a good few years ago, I spoke on this subject in a church a long, long way away from London, and I began the sermon that day like this. I began by quoting that old adage that we all know, you know, like, death is a taboo subject. What is it? Like, death is the last taboo. Well, that was true then. But I'm not sure that it is true anymore. You see what I mean, uh, I'm sure. That with this coronavirus, this uh, COVID pandemic, isn't it true that our society has had to face death with new realism in recent times. We have been confronted with death on a scale in this country we haven't seen since, I don't know, World War II or before. Well, as with all things, with death, you and I have to seek to adopt a biblical perspective, don't we? A scriptural view on this important subject. So, okay... Should we as Christians be as scared by death as our unbelieving friends and neighbours? Should we? Should we be as terrified as everybody else by dying? And if not, why not? Do you see? Like, what is it exactly that gives the Christian hope and hope in the face of our own mortality? Well, this morning we're going to consider these things. We're going to do so by looking at what is the greatest event of them all. You know, the foundation of Christianity. We are going to consider the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, let me be more precise about it. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to consider two details. Okay? Two details about the resurrection and details that we see in the Gospel of John. Okay, there's the plan. Two details about the resurrection. So, with these things set out before us, uh, can I ask you, if you've got a Bible there at home, uh, can you can you open it? Can you make sure that you turn with me to John chapter 20 and to the verses that we read together in John chapter 20? Okay, right, fine, two details. Now, Given that I've said that, we're going to look at two details, what would you expect me to, to do next? You would expect me, of course, to tell you what that what the first of those details is. Who <laughs> knew at this point in the sermon? I'm not going to do that! Okay, I'm feeling a bit cruel this morning, so I want to keep you in suspense. Okay, instead of giving the game away right off the bat, what I want us to do is to try to kind of build up towards this first feature that I want to uh, on this morning. So for the time being, let's just call this, shall we? Let's call it detail number one. Okay? That's it. Imaginative, isn't it? Detail number one. And let's, for the time being, trying to get to grips with the setting, shall we? So what is happening in John chapter 20? Well, I don't know about you, but the first thing that kind of jumps off the page to me here is the time reference that John gives. Do you see that there? Where Jesus has been brutally executed on the Friday. And where are we now? We're a few days on from this, but you, you might notice it in the text. It's not just that this is early on a Sunday morning. No, John, along with all the other gospel writers, actually, he specifies that this is early on the first day 
of the week. As though they're all trying to emphasize this resurrection is the beginning of something new. It's the first day of an entirely new week. Now, so much time and energy over the years has gone into an apparent contradiction in the resurrection accounts, hasn't it? I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know, here's the apparent contradiction, that where the other gospel writers, they have a group of women <laughs> going to the tomb on that morning. The apparent contradiction is that John only has one woman. He only has Mary Magdalene. So, is that right? Is, is, are these resurrection accounts in conflict? Well, have a look at verse 2. Do you see it? Like, yes, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. Yes, she finds the stone rolled away. Yes, she goes back to Peter and John. But what does she say? Do you see the words? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we <laughs> do not know where they've laid him. Do you see it? Is there a contradiction? There's no contradiction at all. Yes, John is focusing our attention on Mary Magdalene. But there is a group here too. Now, at this point... It's almost like, isn't it, that we hear a, a bang, a starter pistol uh, going off in the distance. Isn't it like that? You see what I mean? Because hearing from me about the stone being rolled away, do you see what Peter and John do? They, they drop everything and they, they run to the tomb with John, presumably because he's much younger than Peter. He outstrips Peter. He gets to the tomb first and he, and he, he waits at the, the, the door of the tomb, if you like, and he peers in. Now, I know, right, people at London City Presbyterian Church, you, people at Grove, you're the same. We've read this account a hundred times, haven't we? Or we've heard this section of scripture preached a million times over. I wonder, have we ever noticed the repetition in John's account? Do you notice how John repeats what he sees? Have a look. Three times John mentions the linen cloths, the linen cloths. Now, so because this is so clearly important to John, it will come as no surprise to you at all, I assume, that it's here and now that we come to the very first detail that I really want us to linger on and focus on. Have you been any way curious <laughs> about what the first detail is? Well, let me put you out of your misery this morning, just now. I want us to think about the face cloth. The face cloth. That was in the tomb. Read with me verse 7. Peter enters the tomb. He sees the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. It's not lying with the linen cloths, but the face cloth is folded up in a place by itself. Now, over the years, so much has kind of, so many ideas, so many theories have been put forward about this faith face cloth. So what I want us to do just now, just to try and get to the bottom of its significance, I want to do three things really, 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 really briefly, okay? I want us to, to think about an error that's very often made about the face cloth, and then I want to put forward two suggestions that I think John is making here with the face cloth, okay? So an error and two points he's making. Will you follow these? You will, won't you? I'll be ever so brief. So what's the error? Listen to it. Here, what John is not doing with the face cloth, John is not appealing, he is not appealing to an ancient Jewish custom. Okay, not appealing to Jewish tradition. See, we love uh, the internet 
Don't we? We all love the internet. It's so useful, so helpful. We wouldn't be able to do this this morning were it not uh, for our online capabilities, right? We love it. We also know, as much as we love the internet, we also know that it is the fount of all manner of misinformation and inaccuracy. Isn't that right? That is certainly the case here. Because even a superficial search online about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it reveals this. It reveals that one particular story about the face cloth in the tomb, one story has really taken root. That even many evangelical blogs will say the same thing about this face cloth. And it's something I'm going to suggest to you this morning is fake news. (laughs) All right. So what is this tall tale? Well, it goes like this, okay? So people suggest that what John is doing with the face cloth, he is appealing to a custom, a Jewish custom, to do with servants and their masters. Okay, so here's here's the idea. See if you can follow this with me. So it's suggested that in, in the ancient world, servants make a meal for their masters. They would serve the meal to the masters. And then the servant would would, would shrink back into the corner of a room and, and pay attention. And at this point, the master would do one of two things, okay? So the master would either eat the meal and then take his napkin or face cloth and he would either throw it on the table. And this would be a sign that he is completely finished with the meal. Or the master would do this. The master would eat the meal And then he would take the face cloth, the napkin, he would fold the napkin. And this was a sign that the the master was going to leave the table, that he would be coming back again in a moment or two. Does everybody follow it? Do you follow it? So either chuck in the face cloth, chuck chuck in the napkin, that's a sign he's finished, or folding the napkin, that's a sign to the servant that he's going to go away from the meal, but he's going to come back again in a minute. Now, if you are following that, do you see what all of these blogs and websites, do you see what they're doing? Do you see the point they're making? They suggest that Jesus is doing something similar in the two. That what the master is doing by folding his napkin, folding the face cloth, what he is doing is signalling to the disciples, his servants, that yes, he's going to leave, yes, he's going to ascend, but that one day the master shall return. What do you think? Do you like it? It's a bit of a twee story, isn't it? It's a bit woman's own or sort of reader's digest. We're thinking, oh, I'd make a nice children's address in a church, right? Here's the problem with it. It is not real. <laughs> it's just not right in any way. Think about this. Not only the Jews in the first century world not even use napkins. You know, that's a Western thing. Not only is that the case, but get this. There's nothing in scripture whatsoever to support such an idea. This this is completely without biblical basis. So it might sound nice. And it is everywhere, online, websites, blogs, you name it. We have to reject it. Because that is not what is going on in John chapter 20. So he's not appealing. You're with me, there's the error. John is not appealing to some Jewish tradition. But you and I are still sitting there, aren't we? We're scratching our heads. We're thinking, you're repeating this stuff. You're, you've, you've told us about this face cloth, John. What is the point you're making? Let me suggest two things. Here's the first one. Listen to it, please. They hear what John is doing. He views this face cloth as proof of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, as proof of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. 
See, let's go back to Mary Magdalene just for a second here. Let me ask you a question about Mary. When she gets to the tomb, what is the conclusion that Mary draws when she gets to the, the, the tomb? What's the conclusion? What does she think that's happened? Would you agree with me that Mary assumes that Jesus' body has been stolen? That's right, isn't it? Isn't it? Like time and time again, she says, well, what have they done with the body? Like, where have they taken the body? She thinks it's been stolen. Now, you and I could be really harsh on her at this point, I think. We could think, well, Mary, come on! Mary, you should have expected Jesus to rise from the dead. We could be harsh on her, but in a way, isn't it the very natural thing to conclude? You know, as well as I do, grave robbery was incredibly uh, common in the first century world, wasn't it? The Jews, they assume that that's what's happened to Jesus as well. Emperor Claudius, a few years later, he has to instill much harsher penalties in grave robbers, such was the prevalence of the crime. And so now, now, I wonder, do you see it? Do you see part of what John is doing in chapter 20? Do you see what he's doing? By pointing you to these linen cloths, to this folded face cloth, what's he doing? He is showing you this was not grave robbery. This was not the theft of Jesus' body. Do you not see that? Just think think about it for a moment. Linen, cloth, (laughs) incredibly expensive in the first century world. What thief, what self-respected thief would leave all of that behind? Then you think about it, like you think, wait a minute, what thief in the heat of the moment of the crime, what thief is going to spend time ages unravelling Jesus' body to leave the precious linen behind? What thief's going to do that? And do you know what I think the clincher is? I love this. It's almost funny. Like, what thief, what self-respected thief carrying out a dead body, carrying out a cadaver, you know, with his friend, what thief says to his accomplice, Hang on, put the cadaver down. I've got to go back into the tomb and I've got to fold up the face cloth. Do you not see it? I mean, no wonder we read what we do here in verse 8. Peter's gone into the tomb. John, he sees a face cloth. He follows him in. He looks, he sees it's folded up. He sees the linen cloth and what happens? Do you see? John believes. He looks at the cloth. He sees is folded and John knows, he knows his Lord is risen from the dead. So we see that an error with the face cloth, then we see that it's proof that Jesus' body has not been stolen, he is risen. But then I said a second thing here, and that is that John sees uh, this face cloth as proof of Jesus' final defeat of death. His final defeat of death. See, uh, unusually for us today, we had two readings this morning, didn't we? We had two readings. Rule helped us out with the first of those. And so maybe you're wondering, not just why we had two readings, but maybe you're wondering, why on earth did we read, why did Rule read what he did earlier on, the raising of Lazarus? That seems a bit strange. Well, perhaps you see that. Perhaps you see that what John is doing in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the language that he uses, John is drawing a contrast with that earlier miracle, the raising of Lazarus. In the language, there's a comparison and a contrast drawn. Did you see that? If not, if you don't see that, 
just imagine with me how Lazarus must have left the tomb. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever tried to picture it? <clears throat> so Jesus is called in the tomb, called Lazarus. Out, and, and, and you know, Lazarus must have, he must have shuffled out of the tomb. Did you see what I'm getting at? Lazarus must have like waddled out of the tomb like a penguin. Why? Because unlike our Lord, Lazarus in his resurrection was entirely still wrapped in the grey clothes. In fact, John deliberately specifies that unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, when Lazarus came out of the tomb, Lazarus still had that face cloth, that napkin, that handkerchief. He still had it around his head. Now, when you think about that, and you see how different our Lord's resurrection was. Do you not see the point that John is making here? Do you see it? Think about it. Where Lazarus was raised still with need of his grave clothes. What's true of Jesus Christ? He could discard these things forevermore. Do you see it? Where Lazarus was raised to one day still die again. What's true of Jesus Christ? He was raised and he was finished with death. Did did you not see that? Let me illustrate it with my wife. You know, my uh, wife every year, what she does is she puts away, at some stage in the calendar, she puts away our winter clothes. Just a few days ago she did it. She's an optimist. She thinks the weather is changing and it's going to be summer and it's going to be beautiful. So she puts away her winter clothes. Now, what does she do? She's putting them away, so she takes the clothes, she puts them on the bed, she sorts them out. What's the last thing she does? She's putting them away. She doesn't need them. So she folds the clothes. Do you see it? She takes all the clothes, she, she knows they've got to be put in a box or put in a bag somewhere and they've got to be pushed away and hidden. So let's fold all these clothes, let's get them, let's fold them. I'll fold them because I do not need them anymore. And you see it, don't you? That's what's happening here. Let me speak personally. For years and years I've wrestled with John chapter 20. Why is that face cloth folded? And when you see the reason, isn't it absolutely wonderful? In that tomb, in that morning, the Lord Jesus Christ did not just rise to life. In that tomb, the Lord Jesus Christ rose to life forever. More. Why was that face cloth folded? Why does John point you to that folded face cloth? Why? Because it shows you the Lord Jesus Christ. He is done and done with death. Okay, so that's detail number one. I promised you two details. I need to underline at this stage that we're going to look at this much, much more briefly. So in a word or two, what is detail number two? Detail number two. Well, here I'm going to say two words that might, in the first instance, they might sound irreverent or disrespectful. But if you follow me, you stick with me, you'll see that you'll see what I mean. So what are the two words? Well, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's risen. He is risen. The words that follow... So what? Now, did it sound disrespectful to you? But, but do you not understand? Like if we had a, someone new to Christianity, someone new to the gospel this morning, you can see that they'd be thinking that. 
Don't you like they could see, you could think with them, like, okay, Jesus, a couple of thousand years ago, he's risen, he's defeated death, his great clothes are folded, but you see the question, you see the thinking, what does that mean for anyone? Why is that significant to anybody else? Jesus is risen, good for him, what about me? Jesus is risen, so what? Well, I do think that there's something in this text that really answers that, goes to the heart of it, but to see the answer... We have to make two, we have to go back the way, we have to make two uh, unscheduled stops. So what am I talking about? Well, okay, first of all, you do this with me. You go back with me. Go back. Go back to the text. Look at verse 11. And what do we see in verse 11? So Peter and John see the empty tomb. They see the linen. They go back home. And then Mary Magdalene. She now looks into the tomb, doesn't she? What does she see in the tomb? She sees two angels. Why? She sees two angels, I think, to underline again. This is not grave robbery. Look, there's angels here. This is a heavenly thing that's happened. God, there's been a divine working, a miraculous work. Do you see it? You? Well, I think you can imagine, as you watch this just now in your home, you can imagine the next detail. Because I think as Mary is sort of stooped over looking at the tomb, sees the angel, speaks to the angel, she gets that feeling. You know that feeling you get sometimes when there's somebody standing behind you? You know how there's a kind of unerring sense you get, well, there's somebody behind me. I think that's what happens here, isn't it? Mary speaks to the angel, stooped over. She senses, wait a minute, there's, there's a figure behind me here. So what does she do? She, 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 she swivels round. And she sees him. And I want you to listen to me just now. I want you to do this. I want you to, to picture that scene. I want you to, to hold onto that scene just for a moment. Do, do you get it? There is Mary in the morning light with the empty tomb behind her. And she's got this figure before her. And it is a figure that she misidentifies. Will you, will you, you press pause on that? She misidentifies this figure before her. Got it? Got it? Remember it? But what's the second unscheduled stop? But let's go back, but not the text. Let's go back in time. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden and to the very first man himself. Now, 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 you stick with me. What do you know about Adam? What do we know? We know that Adam was created in righteousness. And Adam was created for a relationship with God. We, we even know Adam's role in life, in a sense, don't we? Genesis 2.15 tells us that he was to work the ground, till the ground, till the garden. What was Adam? Adam's a gardener. Adam's a gardener. No, but wait a minute, oh, it all went wrong, did it not? What happened? Adam rebels against God, disobeys God. He, he, he is faced with a tree and a test and called to obedience. Adam yields to satanic temptation, now listen carefully, plunging, not just himself, but all of subsequent humanity into sin. Now, why? Why Why are we all affected by Adam's disobedience? You know the answer, don't you? It's because Adam was our representative, wasn't he? As the first man, he was our figurehead, our federal head, our representative of humanity. You know that, do you? Hold it tight. Stay with me. Now, what happens there? From Genesis 3 onwards, this kind of scriptural anticipation begins because God promises that one day a new figure will rise up. Not just a king, not just a leader, but God promises, listen, listen. God promises a new representative 
for his people. A figure that the New Testament clearly sees fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Isn't it? Think about it. In Jesus' ministry, he's faced with satanic temptation in the wilderness. And what does he do? He resists that. Unlike Adam. And then what does Jesus do? He is faced with a tree and a test. Isn't he a cursed tree? But what does Jesus do? Unlike Adam, he submits to his father's will. And I like this, I really do. In the previous page, in John's Gospel, we hear Pilate say of Jesus exactly the same words that God said of Adam. You see, we're waiting for a representative and Pilate says, Behold the man. Behold the man. So in light of all of that, you know, do you not feel the tension that would be in the air reading John chapter 20 for the very first time? That the question on our lips would be so clear. That we are desperately in need of a new representative. What's the question we're asking at this point in the story? We're asking, has Jesus represented us effectively? It's not the question we're asking. Will God accept the work of this new representative? And then you you remember the scene we were to hold in our minds. We're desperate for a new representative. And what is the mistake that Mary makes? Isn't it incredible, friend? Listen to me, please. At the most important moment in all of human history, what does Jesus do? We're desperately in need of a representative. And the Lord allows himself to be mistaken for a garden. Do you not see the theological significance in that mistake? We are so in desperate need of a representative. And what does Mary see in the morning light? She sees the second Adam. She sees the true Adam, the last Adam. She looks and she sees in Jesus the greater gardener than Adam. What are we being shown at the moment? We are being shown that here is a representative and one acceptable at last to God. And isn't that, isn't that marvellous? But isn't it all the more remarkable when we see, when you see what it means? What were those two words? Jesus has risen. So What? Don't you see it? If he is our representative friend, Christian friend, he is risen and risen for us. He is risen for you as our representative. Do you understand, Christian friend? You and I have no need to fear death in the way that our society is fearing death today. We don't. Why not? Because in that tomb, Jesus Christ was not risen in isolation Jesus Christ is risen as the first fruits of the resurrection of the, of the dead. Death is nothing to us anymore. Do we not see what, what does Paul say to us in Colossians? We are now in Christ. We are risen already in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it? It's an, a miraculous thing. Isn't it a, a, a beautiful thing that Christ Jesus in bearing sin on that cross and rising and, and dealing with the curse. It means for you, it means for me. Christ is our representative. It means that for you, death is nothing. Death has lost its sting. And I uh, end with this for all, all of us. 
I think, I think we, we must appreciate, and, and do we appreciate that, that Jesus Christ is the great gardener, but he is the great gardener of his church. In Isaiah chapter 58, God promises his people that we shall become as a watered, beautiful garden. On the cross, Jesus promises to those who believe paradise, a garden. In Revelation chapter 22, how is the church triumphant portrayed to us? Is a beautiful, beautiful garden watered by the river of life. Christ is the gardener of his church. Do you see the question that must be asked? Do you? Friend, today, is Christ tending your soul? Has his hard labour, his hard graft of righteousness, his hard graft of atoning for sin, has it produced the flowers of repentance and faith in your life? In short, today, as I speak to you just now, are you trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, for your everlasting salvation? Friends, surely you understand this, that all of human history, we stand behind one of two representatives, one of two gardeners. It is for all people, either we are aligned to Adam and his rebellion and rejection of God, or by repentance and faith, we are behind the greater gardener, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is it for you? Is it Adam or is it Christ Jesus? I do pray that if you're watching this video and you came to this video unbelieving, I, I, I pray that this morning you see in John chapter 20 the great realities of Jesus' saving work. And I got an even bigger prayer than that. I pray that if you started this video unbelieving, I pray that you do as John did on that first Easter morning. I pray that now... You look at the folded face cloth in that tomb. I pray that you see with the eyes of faith the greater gardener, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, even now, you see and believe. Friends, let us bow our heads to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this This. Greatest of all miracles, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus Christ is done with death, victorious over death, having borne our sin in his death. But we thank you that this is not done in isolation, it is done for us. We thank you that you have died and risen for your people. May your name be forever praised. Amen.